time of the year, most businesses are wondering, am I on the right track? We're planning our budgets and wondering where to invest and maybe where to pull back from. But that's where the power of marketing operations comes into play. Different from other marketing roles, the person in charge of ops can ideally be dedicated to a position. But if you're an entrepreneur, maybe you're managing a small marketing team, it's essential to know where some of those key foundational skills that will help you invest in marketing and where it makes sense or where it makes the most sense for you. Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I'm your host, Blythe Brumley, but on this show, we cover the attention economy, B2B marketing, and how it all ties into the world of logistics. And in today's show, we are going to be talking about how marketing operations can save you time and money. We're talking to Phoebe Noche. She is the director of marketing over at Freight Friend, and she's telling us about her content marketing strategy. She was a former journalist. Now she has turned into the world of marketing. So I always think that that's an interesting parallel. And then Facebook is changing their name. And is it being driven by the metaverse? What's the metaverse and how is it going to be affecting businesses and our daily lives? We're going to cover all that in today's show. But let's go ahead and dive into the first topic talking about the important role of marketing operations. And there was an article that sort of made the rounds on Twitter and LinkedIn that caused a little bit of a stir, especially on marketing Twitter, if that's kind of a thing. It kind of is a thing. Uh, but it's called, the article is titled, What If Performance Advertising is Just an Analytics Scam? Now, a bit of a background, this author is Rand Fishkin, who if you've been in the marketing world, you probably know who he is. He was the co-founder over at Moz. He left and now he's the founder over at SparkToro, an audience research tool. We actually had his marketing ar architect, Amanda Natividad, on a recent episode, and she was telling us how to conduct that audience research using the SparkToro tool. So he kind of has an idea of, of what he's talking about when he says, what if performance advertising is just an analytic scam? His argument is that advertising to folks who have already showed intent to buy is a waste of time and a waste of money. For example, some of the bigger companies that he talks about in this article that have turned their advertising off and saw no noticeable difference as far as the sales lift or any adverse effects from turning their advertising off. Airbnb cut $542 million in 2020 from their performance advertising spend and saw no measurable fall off in attributable sales. I probably just butchered the, that word, but they couldn't attribute uh, performance-based marketing to sales. And performance-based performance -based advertising is essentially like pay-per-click, um, social media advertising, and basically anything that you pay for on a digital environment, that's considered performance advertising. But let me repeat that statement. Airbnb cut $542 million from their advertising spend budget, and they saw no measurable drop-off. So Rand says, he, go, he continues on in the article, that the, the hard lesson pretty much learned in this is that if you're advertising to those already primed to buy, then you'll see a phenomenal return on your advertising investment without any sales lift. So what does that say? It says that it's estimated, he also estimates that somewhere between 60 to 99% of the people exposed to those ads would have purchased anyways. So plainly saying, if you're doing a good job with your marketing and you're already sending out educational messages, you're hosting educational webinars, you're really putting the message out there of what problems that your company solves, then performance advertising is taking all the credit for the stuff that you've been doing that's been working really, really well. So when folks are ready to buy, they're simply Googling your business. And if you have some of this performance advertising already set up, 
then what the person is doing is they're clicking the first result and in the search results and nine times out of 10, that's an advertisement if you have ads running. So they just saw the ad and that's what pushed them on the purchasing decision. Well, it didn't necessarily, I guess this argument is, is that it didn't necessarily push them on this uh, into a purchase decision. They were already going to purchase. It was just part of that process for them getting to your company website in order to purchase your service or your product. But it brings me back to the original topic is how would you know this if you weren't actually measuring the results or if you just had $542 million like Airbnb and you decided to cut that advertising off and you didn't notice any change? How would you know that what, what is causing this and what is the ripple effect from causing that or turning off that advertising? Well, that's where the important role of marketing operations comes into play because you know, as a marketing ops person, you know what's driving revenue and you can experiment in marketing, but you have a business case for making that experimentation. So say you a, a good experiment that you can think of is uh, I'm going to do a 12 episode podcast series and I'm going to see how it goes. I'm going to interview my subject matter experts and then I'm going to run that episode and, and release an episode every week. And that is going to be our experiment. You are using your subject matter experts to provide educational material that you can then send out to your awareness channels on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on a, a variety of different social media platforms. So you're educating your audience, but you have a business case for those experiments. And so that's really where marketing ops comes into play because I'm sure most of us have been in a situation where you're trying to decide if you want to purchase a new software, if you want to, you know, ha have different places uh that that where you haven't exactly figured out your processes yet, but you're trying to make a purchase decision when you haven't figured out your processes yet. Or maybe someone in sales has said, "Hey, I'm going to go out and and we need Salesforce." but you don't exactly know how Salesforce is going to fit into your current processes. So you have folks that are making purchases and when you don't have your defined processes formed yet. And so that results in a lot of advertising spend and you have a lot of software and you're not exactly sure what to do with it. So marketing ops really helps hone in on those decision makers and from each department, from accounting, from the executive level, from sales. So marketing ops is the brains behind of why you're making that purchase and how it fits into your processes. And so that leads to the, the next question of how do you know if you're on the right track? And, and this is where marketing ops or marketing operations, this is where their superpower sort of reigns supreme. Because in the next place that you really want to take a look at to know if you're on the right track is checking out what your sales process looks like. Are you doing cold outbound? Are, are folks submitting RFQs to your website? Are they asking for a demo? Uh, where is this happening? Are they ha Is it happening on your website or is it happening through a social channel? Are they calling a phone number? How are those inbound sales calls getting routed? Are they just going to a general 1-800 number? Or are they going to a dedicated sales rep that's going to be able to answer those questions coming from wherever that phone number is placed? How are those leads being tracked and assigned? Do you have a CRM? Do you know which leads you should be talking to and which ones you can kind of say thanks, but no thanks? Make sure that online process of someone contacting you is established first before any marketing campaign is started. 
Now, speaking of online presence, if you're looking at the graphic on the screen, you can kind of see what's called the iceberg effect. What you see in marketing are the leads, the, the emails, the, the reports. But what you don't see is everything. It's the rest of that iceberg that's underneath the water that you don't necessarily see that's making all of these different adjustments to in order for those other things to happen. So complex data and analytics management, lead qualification, uh, funnel tracking, um, technology imp implementations, integrations, things like that. Even, you know, GDPR, opt-in, privacy management, uh, ABM strategy, campaign execution. Those are all the things at the bottom of the iceberg that affect your leads, your email sends, and your reports. And so when you're talking about your online presence, you need to make sure that you're establishing that flow first on the channels that you own and the channels that you rent. But it's also, where are you showing up in search results? If you Google your company name, what are the first handful of results that are showing up? What about the images, the videos? You really want to think of this from an audit perspective where you want to audit your brand to know where you, where you should start. And if you're on the right track, you really want to audit your brand from the customer lens. If you were to go and Google your company in private browser mode, then you would get the legitimate results of what a brand new customer would see and, and how they would potentially interact with your brand. So do you have a Google My Business page set up? We've covered that in a previous episode where that's essentially the prime real estate on the Google search results. Google My Business is free. And you all you have to do is just claim your location. I think I linked to it in the show notes in case you want to check out that previous episode. But it's a pretty much a goldmine for that top real estate spot. You know, when your search results show up on the left-hand side of the screen, on the right-hand side of the screen is where your Google My Business page will show up. So are do you even have that claimed on your account? You can do it very easy. Go check that past video. But if you have that page set up, or if you don't have it set up, that's one thing that you need to get done ASAP to know from a visitor standpoint, hey, someone's Googling my company. I want to be able to give them direct access to my phone number, my email, and my website, all and my location, all within that one Google My Business listing, in addition to the search results that may be showing up under images, videos. And then you, ideally, you want that top spot for your brand name. You want that to belong to you. And if it doesn't belong to you, or if there's other images and, and videos that are showing up, you kind of want to keep an eye on that just to make sure that there's no one else that could potentially be posting content that looks like your brand and it really isn't. So that's something that I recommend that people check every six to 12 months around this time of the year is when you really should be thinking about checking it because you want to make sure that you're on the right track. And some of these things are very important in order to, to take count of, of how your customers are finding you. So your online presence is one thing, but then on the other thing is that you're establishing that pathway to conversion first, because by making sure that other people and, and you making sure that the proper people and strategies are in place so that when you are pumping out content or you're talking about your business out on social media, that when folks Google your name, then your business shows up, then they can go to your website, they can go to your social media accounts, and then they can check to see that this is the right this is the, the right decision that they want to make, that they, they're checking out your website as a, in part of their own internal sales qualification and seeing if you're a good fit for them. So that's how you should be looking at things whenever you're, you're thinking about the marketing ops point of view, because in reality, 
most businesses in the logistics space are not going to have someone that's completely dedicated to marketing operations. They're going to have maybe one marketing person, maybe they have an assistant, and the, the rest of the businesses in this space are really probably the, the entrepreneurs or it's somebody that is wearing a ton of hats and marketing is just kind of sitting off to the side as something that's on the back burner that they're going to get to it eventually. But if you look at your marketing from the operational lenses, then you can start to think about the budgeting, the technology, the measurement, the processes, and you can have that business case for starting up a marketing plan in order to attract the right audience using the right tools to fit into your processes. And then this helps to over, it helps you from overspending on software that you don't need. It also helps from using advertising, tying it back to that first story we talked about. It helps with tying in advertising at a later date because if you've done this process properly, if you've made sure that your company is showing up properly on, on search results, your, all your social media pages are cleaned up and they're looking consistent. You're posting consistent messaging on different social media platforms. Maybe you're sending out emails as well. If you set up those different foundational levels of, of how you are approaching your marketing, then it makes that pathway to conversion much more easier. And then you can also see what's performing well organically. And if it's performing well organically, chances are that educational content that you're already putting out there is going to perform well when you put some advertising behind it. Remember that 99% of people are not in a buy mode. So when you are sending out educational content, you have that pathway to conversion already established. You can get a good read on what's resonating from an organic perspective without putting any money behind it. And then when you're ready to start spending some money, then you can guarantee the distribution, the eyeballs on that educational content whenever you do start putting some money behind it. Because then you already kind of have a use case of what posts have performed well organically, what has already resonated with your audience. And then you can take that money and know that the advertising spend that you're putting behind it to push that educational message out, you've already established that flow of how that person is going to convert eventually for that 1% whenever they become ready to buy. And then you don't have to worry about competing with a bunch of different vendors or, or somebody going to a software comparison tool or, or you know any of your other competitors in the space. They can focus on knowing that you have built up that trust with them and then that they want to do business with you because they know that you're speaking and you're solving their direct problems. So that's sort of my rant. I'm really always scratching the surface on, on marketing operations and how to know if you're on the right track. I do actually have a free course up on the digitaldispatch.io website, how to audit your website. It's a free course. You can take it in a day, take it in a few hours, and then you can put yourself on that pathway to knowing if your brand is set up correctly from both an online presence, conversion, everything that we essentially just talked about, because it's going to help you save a lot of time and money because you, the last thing you want to do is you want to invest a lot of time and money into marketing and advertising when you don't even have the pathway to conversion set up on your website. So that that it, it, following the operational point and following the processes that you should be implementing, you need to do those audits first and make sure that that pathway is there. So speaking of all things marketing and operations, kind of went off on a, on a, on a bit of a tan tangent there. So hopefully it was a, you, you could kind of understand it. I, I would hope so anyways. But let's get into the next discussion because this is someone that I have been wanting to talk to for a long time, even before Cyberly existed. So now we are going to be welcoming in Bibi Noche. She is the director of marketing over at Freight Friend. 
And Phoebe, welcome into the show. First question, Facebook name change, yes or no? Uh, for my company or for myself? <laughs> no, the, the Facebook in general is, is rumored to be changing their name. Do you oh, think it's a good idea oh, or a bad yeah. idea? <laughs> okay. Um, it depends. So I know Google changed their parent company's name a long time ago. And I mean, I think people kind of had a little bit of a similar response to that, but ultimately they didn't change the name of their, their branded products. So if Facebook does something like that, I think that's fine. Um, but I think this is stemming from a lot of the um, pushback that Facebook has gotten from a lot of different things. And I think, I bet Mark Zuckerberg was just saying, you know what, people don't get us, we need to change our name. So um, <laughs> right. it, I think it depends on their approach to this, but if they, you know, they, they keep their branded products, but then they, you know, change their parent company name, I think that would be fine. Yeah, I I, I, kind of, I tend to agree because it's kind of like when Comcast changed their name to Xfinity. It's like everybody still knows you're Comcast. Like you're not really right. fooling anyone. So I just thought that was an interesting uh, sort of news drop that that broke out, I think, earlier in, in this week. So we're going to be covering that later on in the show. So I thought I'd get your quick take on, on you know, there's a bunch of people talking out there of what they should change their name to. But I, I agree with you. I, I think that when Google changed their name as Alphabet, I think is their, their parent company name now. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get into the discussion with you and, and everything cool that, that you've been doing. But first, whenever I talk with clients or leads, I, I tend to tell them that the first marketing hire that they should have is a writer. And you come from a journalistic background. And seeing as how you're, you're a writer with an extensive background, how do you think that it has helped you with your job today? So I think writing is an important skill to have regardless of what role you have in an organization. Um, it helps you better communicate. If you're a salesperson, for example, it helps you better communicate, um, you know, wh what it is you actually do and, and why your product is so great. Um, I think having those sort of like writing instincts, that's just a, a skill that is often overlooked. Um, it has, writing is just a huge part of my everyday responsibility. So that could be anything from website copy to writing articles on our blog to um, writing, you know, the email, our email marketing. So it, it really touches every single facet of my, of, of my responsibilities um, for my day. And so having that sort of background has been extremely, um, it's just been really helpful for me to be able to, to better communicate you know, what, what differentiates our products and why people should be buying it. Yeah, definitely. Because then you don't have to have that, th those instances where you're, you're sending it off to a writer and you just hope that they do a good job. And, and that's very difficult to find a good writer. So to start off with being a good writer, I think just helps so much more of the, just the entire company, like you said, emails to website copy to everything. Um, so, so you're the director of marketing over at Freight Friend, but before you joined Freight Friend, give us a little bit of a background of, of your career and how you found yourself working in Freight. Sure. So it was not expected at all. My original background, like you mentioned, was in journalism. Um, I was a food editor for about four years for Cooking Light Magazine, which was a Time Inc. brand at the time. Um, and I actually left that uh, to go get my MBA in marketing. And since then, I've worked at startups. I've done marketing consulting. Um, and I actually was recruited out of 
my consulting gig to to run marketing for Freight Friend. And one of the reasons why I joined was it's kind of funny. A startup that I worked at two jobs ago, um, a company moved into our same building, and that company was called ShipBob. I don't know if you know about them, yeah. um, but they, they they do fulfillment. They're kind of a little bit of a unicorn in the industry. They um, they raised a very large Series E that coincidentally my friend's husband uh, worked for the VC that raised that round, and so um, just that kind of there, there was a little light bulb that went off in my head about the industry and knowing that there was a lot of investment being poured into it. Um, and so when a recruiter kind of tapped me for this role, I knew that it was a great opportunity to get into kind of a, a little bit more of an old school industry that was really seeing a transformation. Yeah, definitely. Because especially when you come from the startup world, obviously you're, you, you've talked about being a writer how do you think that that experience helped you or or did you, was it more of a, I guess, a, a longer learning curve joining Freight Friend or, or was it just you hit the ground running um, based on your experience that you had with, with other companies? I think having been at other companies, at other startups, it was really helpful in being able to pivot really quickly, having that sort of um, being able to be a little bit more nimble and agile when it comes to making decisions um, and also just wearing so many different hats. Um, that That's something that I do every single day and something that I am fortunate to have had the experience to do in the past. Um, I would say that it's not necessarily, it, it was definitely a uphill battle um, to learn uh, about this industry. This industry, I mean, if you're an outsider, you might know some basic things about supply chain. You see the trucks on the roads. You know that goods are moving back and forth. However, you don't really know the ins and outs of the industry. There's so much um, jargon uh, and, and vocabulary and just things that you, just learning the lingo was really tough. But um, I fortunately have a really great team to work with. Um, our founder and CEO, he's been in the industry for almost 40 years, I think. Um, he was one of the founders of Bag Haulers. Um, our director of business development, Jeff, I probably ping him millions of times per day asking <laughs> questions. Um, so sorry, Jeff. Um, but he comes from a brokerage background. Our CCO comes from a brokerage background. So um, having you know that kind of mind share has been really helpful in kind of you know getting to know the industry and also great resources like um, you know reading freight waves articles and things like that have been really helpful. Now you mentioned you know wearing a ton of hats whenever you you first got to Freight Friend. I imagine that that's still the case because there's so many companies that are are just honestly blessed if they even have one person dedicated to marketing. But you're you're a one woman show for, from what I understand. So how are you balancing the, I guess the role of of being director of marketing and and wearing all of those hats? It's really about prioritization. So when I first got here, it would, we wanted to start basically from scratch. Um, and so for me, that was better understanding our users, how they use the product, um, just understanding status quo, um, you know, doing some of those interviews with um, people in the industry and then, and then being able to kind of make a game plan and say, hey, we want to redo the website as soon as we can. We, um, our sales team needs 
materials to sell. So they need sell sheets, they need, you know, the contracts and all those sorts of sales enablement tools. Um, so that was kind of the start. And then eventually um, you can focus a little bit more on long-term sort of goals. And so, for example, right now, you mentioned a lot about SEO um, previously, and, and that's something that I'm actually focusing on right now and, um, and doing a lot of that through, through own content. And, and, and so when you first arrived, so you really, I guess you sort of honed in on prioritizing those different immediate needs. And then you, I guess for, from reading between the lines, then you can start to kind of navigate after you develop those, those first, like, I guess, quick needs, then you can start to navigate what I guess a, a traditional marketing plan looks like. Can you walk us through of, of where after those immediate needs are met? where you started focusing your efforts? Was it really on, on the content creation or were there other areas, maybe, uh, you know, content experimentation with like podcast or, you know, uh, SEO is what, what you mentioned now. Is that kind of where you're focused at now is more SEO? So I really believe that if you do well in your own channels, you will, you know, do well in earned channels. Um, and when you are a startup with a limited budget, that's something that's extremely important is that as much as I would love to spend all the money in the world on sponsored content and that type of distribution. And you mentioned ads earlier, you know, being able to pour a lot of money in ads, that's just not something that um, I'm able to, to prioritize right now. And so um, focusing on that own content, really being honest and um, understanding, um, you know, how can we provide education and solutions for, um, for our, our three big sets of users, which are shippers, brokers, and carriers. Um, and then ultimately, how does that tie into the larger marketing picture? So like, like you mentioned, SEO, that is something that I, like this week is something that I'm super focused on. Um, and, and a lot of that, you know, it's just like through, through keyword research, through optimizing our website and all sorts of things like that. I feel like marketing and, and especially when it comes to like SEO and content, it just never ends. There's always something that you have to add to the to-do list. But you you mentioned something that I, I thought was great because it actually ties into one of the quotes that I, I heard from you say on, on another show where it says content marketing is educational. It's not promotional. What are some areas of marketing that you think most businesses miss the mark? I think when it comes to B2B marketing, a lot of people are just so advertorial. They're so, mm. um, they, they want to, they want to talk about their company in, in that limited sort of time span that they have to shout it to the world. Right. And that's, that's, that's a huge issue. Um, people don't want to be sold to, they, they just mm -hmm. don't, even when they want to buy your product, they don't want to be sold to. Um, and I think a lot of people, especially with content, that's where they're missing the mark they're, they're every, you don't want to be associated with promoting yourself at every turn, whenever you open your mouth. That's just something that you just, people are going to start tuning you out. Um, right. <laughs> and I think, a lot, I think a lot of people, they miss the mark on their own channels. All their, mm. all their posting are, you know, um, like so-and-so got a promotion and here is, um, like, here's this great new thing that we did. Here's a culture, um, something something great about our company culture. And those things are a valid part of the marketing mix. But for a lot of people, that's the only part of their marketing mix. And what they really need to do is focus on what their audience is interested in first. 
I think if you keep that in mind, then you won't go wrong. Do, do you have a process for figuring out what your your audience wants? I think that that's where that's where I kind of struggle with uh, personally, and and I really only get a ton of insights when I talk to my actual customers. So so do you guys have sort of I guess a maybe a, a feedback loop or or how are you finding out what your audience ideally wants? Um, so I think there's a couple of ways that you can do that. One is through data if you happen to collect data. Um, so for example, through our platform, we are able to uh, see user behavior um, and understand user preferences. And so that's just you know one data point that I can use. Additionally, I think that marketers can, can do a better job of speaking with their sales teams. Um, mm. I think a lot of salespeople, they don't realize what a wealth of knowledge that they are. Um, they're the ones on the front line speaking to potential customers. Um, if they do their own account management, they are also speaking to existing customers. So, um, you know, understanding why someone didn't sign with you or, you know, what are those roadblocks that people are putting up whenever they're trying to sell the product? Um, you know, what are people looking for that maybe you don't have or maybe people don't or people are perceiving your product correctly or incorrectly. And, and just having those maybe like bi-weekly sit downs um, with your sales team and, and doing those sort of interviews to, to suss out that knowledge. I think that's something that a lot of marketers um, uh, leave on the table. I, I absolutely co-sign one of, uh, especially meeting with the sales department, because that's where I think sales also understands where you're coming from, from a marketing perspective. And so then you can kind of just share information instead of it being this sort of sales versus marketing uh, battle that historically is known. I think that that's, you know, that perception is kind of changing nowadays, but you, you, you started to talk about um, Freight Friend, the product. For those who don't know, can you give us a little bit of a rundown of what the product actually is? And, and you, you said it helps shippers, brokers, and carriers. How does that all play nicely together? Sure. So we are a data-powered truckload procurement platform. Kind of a mouthful. Um, but for it's for shippers, brokers, and carriers to really collaborate in a, a trusted ecosystem. Um, we have like a, French, a mutual friendship aspect um, to the platform. And ultimately, the idea is to match the right capacity to the right freight. Um, if people value relationships over automation, and don't get me wrong, we, we do automation ourselves, and that is an important part of the puzzle. Um, but we believe that relationships are the backbone to this industry, mm. um, and so we really double down on that. So if relationships are important, that's how we have really... Um, uh, created and continue to position our product um, it is is to build those relationships with each other as logistics partners. So, so how does it, I guess, fit into, like, say, if I'm a broker, how does this tool fit within my workday? Am I checking it, like, first thing in the morning? Am I checking it? Am I keeping it open on, you know, maybe an extra tab on the browser? How does it fit into the, the I guess, a typical workday? Sure. So for brokers, um, there are a couple ways that we see people use it. Um, some people kind of just set it and forget it and use the automation piece of it. So um, they let the platform auto-communicate loads to their carriers, and then they receive inbounds, and that is one way. Um, ideally, I think you would benefit even more by being more proactive, um, putting in, you know, updating information, um, 
updating carrier profiles, putting in all of that data to really, um, I mean, that's really how the algorithm gets better for you. And so we do have, um, we do have some brokers who are uh, your source when your sourcing team is living in the product. Um, that's, that's, I think that's really the way that they can benefit the most from it. Um, for shippers, there's kind of two big buckets. Um, so they can use it as um, more of like a dynamic um, routing guide. So it can pick up when a routing guide fails. It can help mm. um, help you tender more flexibly. And then also we have a micro bidding function. So instead of waiting for um, instead of waiting for uh, you know the annual bidding process, which is super complex and a little bit cumbersome, you can initiate micro bids on the fly. Oh, that's cool. So, and I think too that you guys have a, a CRM functionality to it as well. If I understand that correctly, I, I was going through some of the, some of the website, and I was like, "Oh, it's a CRM too," because I feel like CRM is just one of those things that in this industry that isn't used enough, and it isn't when they, you know, companies do have it, they don't use it to its full advantage. So, so am I right in that level of thinking that it has a CRM functionality too? Yes, we do have a CRM functionality, but it's not CRM in the sense that not like a Salesforce sort of CRM, but mm -hmm. a um, a carrier relationship management tool. Um, so you can, you can update, you know, carrier profiles and collect, you know, that sort of knowledge base there. Um, and other people on your team can look at it. Um, it's something that it's really like a repository of data that is also, you know, being used to do the data matching. And, and does the, the other tool that, that I noticed that that was kind of a standout is the capacity guru. Does the capacity guru, is that kind of the, the CRM too? Or are they playing together? How, how does that, how does the capacity guru function? Sure. So we actually have two gurus. There's a capacity guru and freight guru, not to be super oh, wow. confusing. Um, but the capacity guru is that dynamic routing engine, engine that I mentioned before. Um, it, it ranks and prioritizes carriers for, you know, any shipment or, or shipping lane. Freight Guru does the same thing, but for freight, um, I think the easiest way for people to think about that is uh, like the digital freight matching that people know and love already. Um, I think the difference really for those two products is that is really under the hood. Um, so it has the most sophisticated data blending that I've personally seen on the market. Um, and that, uh, in conjunction with the machine learning aspect, it continuously learns, you know, based on user behavior and preferences, and, um, it just continuously updates that information. So you're never working from something that's stale. And, and, and two with, with the, the program, because I feel like this is something that isn't done a lot in the industry and that is the, or it's, it's coming along, uh, but integrations into other platforms, other TMSs in, in particular, how does Freight Friend play nicely with some of these, I guess, larger TMSs? Is it, is it a complement to it or is it kind of a, a replacement for, for some of the functionalities that maybe a TMS may be a little bit weaker in? Or is it really like proprietary data that you should absolutely be using, you know, first and foremost, like maybe start your day with it? So we see it as like a TMS booster. Um, we integrate with, at a minimum basis, at least, um, with all the major TMSs on the market right now. Um, I mean, but it can range from, you know, just like a live data sync all the way to book now functionality or quote functionality. Um, however, we are built on microservice API architecture, which means that um, we can integrate with proprietary TMSs 
or we do have some customers who don't want to work on our platform. They want to work within their own UI and we're able to do that as well. That, that's unreal that you can you can speak so eloquently on all of these like complex like tech integrations and and the the functionality of the platform. But then on the other side, I think you're you're a one woman marketing show, right? So so do you have a team? What what does your I guess sort of day to day structure look like of your work day? Uh, it varies every single day. Um, sometimes there's fires you have to put out, and I, I think it really just comes down to prioritizing and chunking out my blocks of time. Mm-hmm. Um, our CCO does have um, have a marketing background in addition to you know the the functions that he does today on a day to day basis. So having him on board has been really helpful, and having another marketing mind. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, I talked to our sales our director of uh, business development constantly through Gchat, um, just about, you know, different things that he needs or um, asking him questions about different things too. So, um, so it, it just varies. So one day I might be uh, working with one of our freelancers on um, some articles that they're writing and, and editing those. Another day I might be um, like, scheduling social media posts. And then another day I might be, you know, working on that email newsletter, working on our website. It just really, really depends, but that's kind of what makes it exciting. Now you, you talked about chatting with your, your uh, business development, but how are you, I guess, managing that relationship between marketing and sales? Are you guys having regular meetings? Because I think that that's such a big challenge for, for so many other companies. How are you finding success in, in talking? To, is it almost just like a friend relationship? Like, uh, or there, do you have to, I don't want to say like force it, but do you have to have those regular bi-weekly meetings that maybe is, is probably the right route of, of what you said earlier? How are you managing that relationship? Um, so we do have two meetings every single week that are more formal. Um, but there is a little bit of a friend aspect. And I think for me, I do like to get to my, know my coworkers on more of a personal level. Um, but of course, that's not necessarily necessary. Um, I think it's really just having that open line of communication. Having a little bit more of a flat hierarchy also helps. Um, and and ultimately, it's like a... a you know, it's both a give and a take, right? You have to understand their needs and, and hopefully they are able to understand yours as well. Um, it really just comes down to, to having that open line of communication. Has it, has it ever happened? Not, maybe not at Freight Friend, but it, you know, previous marketing jobs where, where the sales team is just like, you come up with an idea as a marketer and then you go to them and they're like, no, that stinks. Has that ever happened to you? Cause it's happened to me a few times. Oh, absolutely. Um, there was a there was another startup that I worked at where it was truly the sales team was pitted against everyone else. Um, at one point, they were even selling things that were off book and just expecting the everyone else to execute, which made it pretty rough in terms of rapport. Um, and so I think what kind of helped solve that a little bit was creating more formalized processes, uh, making mm-hmm. sure people were right page with um, messaging. Um, And then we did have to come down to a weekly meeting um, just to even update each other on what we were doing um, to make sure that we were all on the same page and working together in concert versus against each other. 
Yeah, there's there's nothing like a, a rogue employee like going to Zoom info and <laughs> buying an email list and then choosing to send everybody a mass cold email. There's a that that's that's infuriating. It may or may not have happened in a previous life for me. <laughs> now, now there was there was another uh, article that that I really liked that you wrote, and it says how to create content for boring industries. And and one of your points was storytelling. How do you approach storytelling in a, you know, quote unquote, boring industry? When I say boring industry, I think it's not that industries are inherently boring. It's that people don't think that they have anything of value to say, um, mm-hmm. that they don't have a story themselves. And that's just absolutely not true. And I've worked in a lot of different um industries that may fall under boring industries. So for example, um, I had a previous client uh, who was in uh, like a construction equipment industry and they were actually very, they're a household name. Um, they, uh, they were trying to fall into that trap of just, just putting out like promotional advertorial sort of content. And I think what it is, you just have to, to dig in and say, hey, what are you working on? Let's talk to, you know, your innovation team and say, you know, what are, what are you seeing as are, that are trends in the industry and what are the things that you guys are working on next? Mm. Or, or talking to um, a leader in the company who has been in that industry for a long time and listening to their war stories, just letting people talk um, about their experiences, you can really suss out some really interesting threads to, to go down on. Um, I, I, talking with the sales team, as I mentioned before, digging into your data, um, there might be things that you uncover that you didn't realize could be a really great infographic or, um, you know, a really great blog post that you could expound on. There are just a lot of different, um, ways to, to look for a story. I just think people aren't digging deep enough. Yeah, because I think that most people they'll they'll say like, oh, storytelling is so important, and yes, we know it's important, but I think a lot of businesses are wondering where to even get started. So, so you listed off, uh, you know, a bunch of different recommendations in order to get started with your own storytelling, and, and in order to find those pain points so you could, that you can speak to them. Um, now, now when it comes to to first timers in the logistics space, I think that there are a lot of companies that are afraid to jump into content marketing. Do you think that starting with with the sales team is is a good approach to get started with content marketing or or maybe is there another you know low hanging fruit opportunity that they you think that they should be taking advantage of i mean that's definitely one way that you could do it i think people just need to ask themselves what is interesting to them um mm. i think people are so afraid to to even approach it that they kind of hit this roadblock and don't even get started um just 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 get started I think that will that will you know kind of start the flow and especially start the flow of ideas and also position your team to start thinking about things um, uh, from a content marketing perspective, um, and that could even be uh, you know someone you know goes visits a client and uh, ends up just taking a photo of something cool that they're doing you know at that at, like on site that one picture is technically a piece of content, right? Like that's just, that's just one approach. So I think people just need to get started. They need to think about what is important to them because chances are it's probably important to some other people. Um, and then just also looking at what are some of the trends in the industry. Um, 
you know, what are, what are the things that other people are talking about frequently and how can you kind of put that, um, uh, put a personal spin on it, put your own lens on it. Um, and, and really those are just like some really basic, easy ways to get going. Yeah. I, I love that point that you made about, you know, if you're visiting a customer, just take a picture of something cool that they're doing, because then if you post it, then the customer loves it. They probably share it with their audience. Their competitors are probably checking it out and, and, and seeing what's going on. So I think that it definitely has a ripple effect where you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're doc. It's like Gary V says, and I, you know, some people cringe when it, whenever I quote him, but it says document, don't create. And so when you train your brain in order to start looking for things like that, you'll start to notice them more often, which is, you know, it makes creating content, I think, a lot easier. And, and, and all right, second to last question. As the former food editor for Cooking Light magazine, we got the holidays coming up. What's your favorite recipe that you think that that folks should try out? Um, this is not a Cooking Light recipe. In fact, this is a very heavy and not healthy recipe. Um, but this, this recipe was on, uh, the New York times cooking, uh, uh, website. It's, I think it's called buttery breakfast casserole, but it is a, it is, it is so delicious. It you instead of bread, they use, um, croissants. Um, and then there's a ton of rear cheese and heavy cream and it just, it's delicious and absolutely worth the calories. All right. So buttery breakfast is casserole or I I already forgot (laughs) casserole I'm gonna google that as soon as this show is over because I need some holiday cooking ideas all right so Phoebe where can people follow more of your work where can they follow freight friend all that good stuff freightfriend.com um that's the easiest way to to keep track of what we're up to Awesome. Well, I appreciate your, your, your time and perspective so much. I, I think that you're one of the smartest marketers in this industry. So I encourage everyone to, to go and follow your work, link to them all in, in the show notes, just to make it easy for you. Thank you again, Phoebe, for coming on the show. It's a long time coming. Thank you so much. It was fun. <laughs> awesome. Appreciate it. Well, Phoebe is such a great, just a, obviously it's a great interview talking with somebody like that who has, you know, that the background of being a creative in other industries. And so I think that that gives you a little bit of an edge. So, you know, any company that's out there that's thinking of, of hiring somebody in, in marketing or getting a little bit more creative, I think hiring somebody that's from outside the industry helps a ton because then you get those fresh pair of eyes where you maybe will have some blind spots um, being sort of a, a veteran in this industry. So Highly, highly encourage everybody to go follow Phoebe's work. Um, she has a great blog too, so so be sure to check that out. But now into our final story and moving into the the question about Facebook's name change and what you would change it to if if you had the opportunity. Because Facebook made news earlier this week that they were going to be changing their name, sort of following maybe that is theorized that they're going to follow that Google model where Google came up with the parent company name of Alphabet, but. Uh, This comes from Today in Digital Marketing. It says reports this morning say that Facebook is planning to change its name, not its app name, but its corporate name, sort of like how Google's parent company went from Google and started being Alphabet. That happened six years ago. So there's no word on when the new name will be, although it could be announced as soon as the end of this month. And it got a lot of people theorizing, well, why is this happening? And if you just saw that little sort of fancy picture of Mark Zuckerberg on the screen uh, with uh, looking like he's in a a universe, a very pretty universe, I guess is the right way to put it. Uh, But that is, it's rumored that Facebook is changing their name because they want to become more involved and double down on the metaverse. And what's the metaverse? That's what we're going to be talking about. And this was a really uh, exciting topic to sort of dive into uh, as we, you know, sort of hit the end of this show, because what's the metaverse? So here's my attempt 
to kind of break it down. We, we've seen a glimpse of it so far. Um, if you recall, Travis Scott, who's a performer, uh, he performs in the Fortnite game. Or, the, you know, obviously, if you have kids or something like that, or if you're, you know, brothers and sisters, maybe they're a little bit younger. But he actually performed a digital version of him performed within the video game. And also there's another game that sort of caught wind during the pandemic is Animal Crossing. You know, they, they, they kind of have this atmosphere of Animal Crossing where you're making those microtransactions within the game. Um, you're also communicating with other friends. You're doing little meetups. People are helping each other with their little garden. I think that's, you know, how Animal Crossing works. I have a few friends that play it. So that's the, the, the gist that they gave me. But these games, you know, Fortnite, Animal Crossing, currently they're they're more siloed into their own universe. What the metaverse is trying to be is a whole open source universe where you have different, you know, quote unquote planets and uh, different infrastructures and different siloed experiences. So you could have, you know, Animal Crossing within one part of the metaverse. You could have Fortnite in another part of the metaverse. But that is it. That's ideally what it is. Is that it's an open source project. Um, if you've seen or or read Ready Player One, that's another really good example of how the metaverse will sort of work. It's basically a digital environment that you can live in, that you can uh, create interactions and relationships with, uh, microtransactions, things like that. So also think that you know the blockchain with bitcoin and nfts that also plays a larger role you know people are using bitcoin in order to buy nfts and one great example that i heard because nfts is still a little um it, it's a little fuzzy for me to understand but from the way i understand it is that you're buying one of a kind digital pieces of art and that could be music it could be you know digital art it could be uh in a traditional art in a traditional sense but it could be a slew of a you know a few different things um, but one great example is that this one guy that I follow, that he has a digital home in his metaverse, and he buys digital art, he buys NFTs, and he hangs this digital art inside of his digital house. And so when he has people that come over to his digital house, maybe real life friends, or maybe just virtual friends, they will be able to walk into his house and see the NFTs hanging up on the wall. It sounds crazy, but there's a lot of money going back and forth with NFTs right now. And that is one larger explanation of how NFTs could be used in a larger metaverse. So what does this mean for our everyday lives? It, well, it, it's technically it's more than just gaming. You know, you, you see VR becoming a more active role in our lives. Uh, maybe a bunch of people got it for Christmas presents. We, we saw it maybe with Facebook debuting their, their virtual meetings where everybody is wearing a VR headset and you can look around and see almost like cartoony drawings of your coworkers sitting around a boardroom having a meeting. Now, th those are, are different use cases, but it also is, is taking place in the business world as well, because we've seen it with Freight Waves with their virtual events. They have virtual booths that you can walk up to in a virtual space and be able to visit the booth and look around at the booth. We also have HubSpot's Inbound 2021 conference that just happened last week. They debuted a full virtual event with stages, vendors, and actual people making a speech on stage while the audience is watching. And if you're looking at the screen right now, you can kind of see what I'm talking about, that they have a, a virtual stage where the, the media is being played. So whether it's a tweet or whether it's a speech, it's being played from that virtual stage, from that virtual stage. And then you have the crowd of conference attendees virtually that are watching it. 
So there's there's a, a couple use cases there. But then also I want to point out that Microsoft is making a case for building a digital twin into our physical world. And they, they talk about making this, this digital twin as it acts and syncs together. So if you Google, if you go to YouTube and you find this video, it's it's Microsoft's metaverse. And what they show off is basically like a two and a half minute long commercial. And they're showing how from a virtual perspective, you could be looking at IT infrastructure. You could be watching a, you know, a, a demonstration or, or someone could be teaching you how to change something in a virtual environment so that it then the digital twin environment so that it then affects the real life building, or you can have, you know, a, a situation where a, a drone is flying over a solar field and looking for the panels that need to be cleaned, uh, things like that, that tie into the real world space and the digital space. So I thought that that was a really a, a fascinating look. I think that with a lot of these things, you, you probably ask yourself, well, how long until some of this is really going to take hold? Well, it's currently being built. As far as a development standpoint, it's being built. A lot of this code is already being written. Like I said earlier, hopefully this remains something that is open source. The biggest hurdle right now is the hardware. Not that many people have a virtual headset and, and that type of hardware is going to be advanced in the future. Um, so that's one of the stop gaps that, that's preventing this from taking hold even more. So safe to say it's in the very beginning stages. But it also makes Facebook diving into this drama uh, or, or into this genre a little nerve wracking because if you look at their history and it's a kind of a shady history, especially from a global perspective, you know how they've kind of let, uh, they, they've really been responsible for the communication platform for the downfall of governments, uh, Philippines, the Arab Spring, um, even to some extent here in the US where you know a lot of their propaganda isn't being checked properly on their own platform. So Facebook diving into the metaverse, building their own digital universe, I don't know, it feels a little creepy to me. And it feels like something that I wouldn't necessarily want to uh, encourage a company like Facebook to do. But I do think that the larger scope of it, of, of a metaverse environment, could have really great implications, especially from the business world. Imagine a conference that you really want to go to, but maybe you don't have the funds. You could attend virtually and still get all of the networking benefits of, of going to that conference and being able to hang out and ha have a drink by the bar with some of the other people that are there in real life. I think that that has a, a good use case for it. Also, people with disabilities. If you think about the folks who can't travel, how they would be able to put on a VR headset and, and be able to travel to all of these far away places, maybe climb a mountain in a virtual atmosphere. I think that that is where we can find a lot of the the really the, the gold mines when it comes to the metaverse. And it's still in its very early stages. It's obviously still being built. But a couple of those moments, I mean, you think of Minority Report with Tom Cruise, that that, that movie came out forever ago. But that is more likely in it, things like that, those different siloed universes are all being applicable to a larger metaverse. So I think that it's it's quite fascinating to sort of watch this newer technology take hold. But I think that as long as we as we don't let the bigger companies try to control it all, then have it be open source and have it be something that that can be good and 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 also you know be able to deal with the potential downfall. So hopefully you enjoyed that chat. Uh, you know we talked earlier in the show about the importance of marketing operations. Phoebe was great to talk to as well, and then also 
ending it off with the metaverse chat and Facebook changing their name to, to God knows what. We should find that out maybe next week, as early as next week. But thank you, everyone, for tuning into the show. If you missed any part of this episode, you can catch the replay up on Freight Waves TV. Uh, also, by searching Cyberly in any of your podcast player of choice, you can find more of my work. I'm Blythe Brumley over at digitaldispatch.io. All of my social channels are there as well. We'll be right back here next week. Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Freight Waves TV. So I will see you all real soon.